Welcome to another episode of Resilience. My name is Julia Butler, and I'm really proud to introduce this conversation with two very impressive women. Susan Templeman is the federal MP for the seat of Macquarie in New South Wales. Macquarie takes in the Blue Mountains and Hawkesbury areas, both of which have been significantly hit by natural disasters in recent years. The Blue Mountains during the Black Summer bushfires at the beginning of 2020, and then the massive flooding of the Hawkesbury-Nepean River in March this year. Susan was first elected to Parliament in 2016. She has a unique perspective on natural disasters, having lost her own house in the fires which devastated parts of the Blue Mountains community in October 2013. We hung on to things that were positives and perhaps that is one of the things that helps some people cope better than others and that is focusing on the things that you're grateful for rather than all the negative things. My second guest, Anne Cristani, is also a resident of the Blue Mountains. In the immediate aftermath of those October 2013 fires, Anne established the Step-by-Step Disaster Support Service. The service has now provided crisis support and assistance to many hundreds of households impacted by bushfire since that time. Anne has become nationally recognised as an authority in the field of disaster recovery. And in 2020, she was the recipient of a New South Wales Premier's Community Services Award. Anne's approach focuses on actively engaging the capacity of people and communities to reshape their lives after disaster. What strengthens people's resilience after disaster events is connections and relationships. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Susan and Anne. Thank you very much for joining us. This has taken a little bit of a while to get together. In fact, Susan, we were going to talk a couple of months ago, but you've been very busy with the floods in the Hawkesbury. Just when we thought we were getting over and starting to move towards recovery from one natural disaster, you know, we get hit by another one. And as it seems, my electorate seems to be one of the most disaster prone in the country. Yes. With that dual effect of of flood and bushfire. But of course, there was drought and, and everybody's had COVID. And I'm even starting to hear of mice. Oh, no. Yeah, we're probably at the beginning of a period where people say this was when the incidences of disaster seemed to really gain pace. So we're going to need a lot of resilience. Oh, my gosh. Sorry, the the mice bit has thrown me. Um, I can cope with everything else. Um, Yeah, I felt a bit that way. I hope that it's just some isolated reports and that it doesn't mm. progress into something more. Wow. Okay. But, yeah, it was certainly lovely to see you all over the media. There was a couple of weeks there that I think you you were on TV quite a lot, so you must be a bit tired by now. 
<laughs> One of the challenges I think is just maintaining, you know, it, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon that we do in this sort of role, particularly yeah. when something big hits your community. You know, that's not the time to go and have a little rest. Um, mm. It is the time when people are going through really tough stuff to just be able to be present and be there for them, even though I certainly do not have the answers and, and any quick fixes for mm. them in recovering from or even coping with the massive damage we've seen from the floods. Yeah, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking, some of those scenes on TV as well. Yeah, do you know what's a really interesting thing, though, that we've learned is that the community isn't moved as much to donate to charities to help flood victims as it is for bushfires. So mm. a lot more money gets fundraised during bushfires and and not nearly as much during floods wow. so the ability of of charities to help out afterwards is far more constrained i wonder what that's about that is very interesting am i right in thinking that droughts probably attract quite a bit of funding look i haven't got the data on on drought and i haven't had a specific conversation about it but but the t length of time i wonder if it's to do with the length of time yeah drought goes on for a long time and and builds up and so pe people there's time for them to absorb pictures of it over a period of time oh. the bushfire we had obviously the smoke was around a really long time. The flames came and went over a long period of time. Mm. The flood was all over and done with in a week. That's true. I've, yeah, that's yeah, true. In, in terms of the media and the, and the coverage that it receives, you know, the waters rise, the waters fall. The mess that is left afterwards is not so newsworthy. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but but that is pure speculation. I don't I don't know the reason. I just know that that's what charities have told me, and mm. you know one of the things that makes it possible to recover from a, a a big natural disaster like a bushfire is the idea of being able to rebuild and start over. But you've got insurance money to do that. In the case of the floods, mm. there's very little insurance money compared to to what what people in bushfire areas are covered for because most people can't afford the insurance in floods. And so it is just the charity money and people's own resources that are going to do it. So, again, lots of different dynamics. I mean, you really wouldn't wish these natural disasters on anybody, but, you know, all the science tells us is that we're going to see more and more of them across the country. Yep, yep. Well, it's been encouraging that talk of climate change is now actually sounding a lot more mainstream in both our community but in America as well. So hopefully we're moving in the right direction if it's not too late. Yeah. Our kids ask me about this idea, is it too late for us to do things? Mm. And, well, there are certainly things that we might have had the opportunity to do 30 years ago, 20 years ago, a decade ago that, that are now not viable options but there's always things that we can do to um, mitigate and make ourselves more prepared and in a better position to cope with them and I think people have to have that sense of hope that there are things we can do is it what we could have done 30 years ago well no yeah but but there are still viable things that we can do to ensure that that we survive and thrive notwithstanding the challenges that we'll face Yes, absolutely. So, hi, Anne. How are you? I'm very well, Julia. Nice oh. to um, be speaking with you again. 
Well, thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. So just a quick introduction to people. Um, I know Anne, um, a friend of many years. She's a mother, an artist, a singer. And also, Anne, you are the recent recipient of a New South Wales Premier's Community Services Award. Yes. That was so exciting. (laughs) Can you tell me about that? How did that come about? Well, to be honest with you, I have no idea. I guess somebody nominated me and each year perhaps the Premier puts a um, call out to the local state members Uh to nominate some people in their community Uh who they feel, I guess, has um, been of service to their community in in some form or another. So (laughs) the first I heard of it, um, I got invited to an event And I wasn't exactly sure, you know, what it was about. And when I arrived, I went up to the local member, uh, state member, and I said, "Um, great to see you. Why am I here? And she just said, oh, because you're getting an award. (laughs) (laughs) And I just said, oh, am I? (laughs) Um, So it was a surprise. And to be honest with you, the award this year was very much focused on the bushfire recovery, which, as you know, I've been involved with. What I was very grateful for was that our local member continues to put a spotlight on the work of women in disaster response and recovery. Yeah. And particularly uh, in the psychosocial aspects of recovery that often doesn't get you know, it's not as sexy or, or dramatic as, you know, putting out fires and rescuing people from floods. And I'm certainly not minimising, you know, that sort of work, which is incredibly important. But mm. I guess the behind the scenes work, which is really about the uh, most significant proportion of recovery, really, when you think about it, are the psychological um, natural disaster. So I was very grateful that, number one, a woman was recognised and, you know, and number two that, you know, if this goes any way of kind of, um, you know, increasing the profile of what women do in recovery, then I was very proud about that. Oh, well, that's fantastic. I don't know if it's appropriate, but I had a a similar experience of turning up and not knowing about something. And I have to tell you, because it was was a, a terrifying moment of, being asked to attend an AGM of the hospital volunteers when I worked for health. Mm. And I was to go in and, as as it was told to me, attend, talk to the volunteers, tell them about angel blankets and ask for some money. I said, oh, how many people will be there? And my manager said, you know, it's, it's an AGM, so maybe half a dozen people. So I turn up and I'm directed to the auditorium and there's 200 people and I'm taken <laughs> down the front and I'm sat there and there's a program saying keynote speaker Julia Butler <laughs> <laughs> and I sat there just thinking to myself now um what am I going to do <laughs> can I fake a heart attack <laughs> anyway <laughs> but I got through that Julia I think that's called being hijacked. <laughs> yes, I think so too. So mine um, had an okay ending, but yours had a really good one. Oh, yeah. And I was going to ask, so step by step, mm. so eight years, is that kind of how long you've been working there? Or Oh, well, look, it's 
It's actually been eight years that I found myself involved in disaster recovery, you know, whether that be direct disaster recovery or presenting at conferences or I created an online e-learning tool for people and volunteers working in the community services sector to prepare them to work in disaster recovery. So in one form or another, I've been working disaster recovery, but step-by-step basically was birthed, if you like, back in 2013 after the Mm -hmm. devastating bushfires up here in the Blue Mountains, which you would remember well. Yes. And at the time, we were only the second service of its kind to be rolled out in New South Wales. And up until that point, most of recovery really had been very much focused on what, you know, we call the command and control aspects of recovery, which are extremely important, obviously. Put out the fire, save property and life, Mm. clean up afterwards, you know, do all of that sort of stuff. You know, take kind of temporary control of the situation to ensure that resources are put to where they need to be. However, we were asked to pull together a team of case managers to mm-hmm. actually provide personalised uh, case management support to people who had lost everything in the bushfires. So that hadn't actually been tried before. So really, we were thrown in the deep end, so to speak, and I'd never worked in disaster recovery. In fact, none of us had. Yeah. It was an extremely steep learning curve, which I'm probably still recovering from. <laughs> step by step, the first version finished in 2014. And as I mentioned, after that, I got involved in trying to pull together resources to make it easier for other community workers or organisations who found themselves working disaster recovery. Yeah. And then, of course, we had the, you know, the dreadful drought followed by the horrifying fires in 2019 and 2020 and Mm. you know more recently those significant flooding events so we're really not getting uh, too much time between events to pause and you know take a breath and it's been pretty full-on yeah absolutely I always think what a resilient community the Blue Mountains is because we've lived with the threat of bushfires year after year But it's not just the Blue Mountains anymore, of course. Mm. Have you had close encounters with the fires at all? Well, look, I haven't. The closest I've probably gotten was uh, we live in the mid-Blue Mountains and there was a fire burning, I think, about five five to eight kilometres away from where we live. Mm. Um, So we could definitely see the smoke. Yeah. And... We, like everybody else in the mountains in other parts of New South Wales, obviously in 2019 and 2020, had packed our car numerous times, had made a decision to go and then came back. So I think apart from when we've been talking to people that, you know, were directly impacted by these bushfires, one of the most stressful things that they identified was the waiting, just waiting. Yes. And to an extent that, you know, even a couple of people said to us, they were even just saying, you know, hurry up and get here. Just do what you're going to do. Take the property or do what you're going to do. But it was the waiting for this, you know, impending firestorm to come through that was, you know, nearly as bad as the actual event itself. 
Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I remember the, that year, um, those those fires, and I think there was one somewhere around the 2000 mark. That year was quite bad too. Yes, um, yes, yes. Yeah, I think that was that was the year that I was sitting at a school assembly and in front of me one of my neighbours who was a, a fiery who said, you know, everyone should have their car packed. But he got up in the middle of the assembly and told everyone to go home and leave. Yeah. So that was quite quite a close it felt like a close encounter but you know we've been really lucky and I hope we continue to be. Mm, Agreed and look as you were saying Julia the Blue Mountains is I think one if not the most vulnerable to bushfire places on earth Mm. and as you said you know as a, a fellow long-time resident of the Blue Mountains there's no question in our mind it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when Mm. and I think our Bushfire consciousness, if I can call it that, is probably more finely tuned or more attuned than many other areas. But after the events of 2019 and 2020, where basically whole swathes of New South Wales were impacted, I think everybody's bushfire consciousness will be much more tuned into, you know, uh, what's happening. And I think as we know you know, predictions for an increase in extreme weather events that lead to these kind of events like extreme flooding and bushfires is is going to become more frequent. So the opportunities or the, um, if you like, the time frame for recovery is going to be a lot shorter between these events. And that has, you know, big implications, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. I was just going to ask the both of you and and Susan, how would you describe resilience? How would you define it? What's your definition? So let's start with Anne. I've been thinking about this question for some time, actually, because it is a descriptor that is used an awful lot, um, not just in the context of disaster recovery, but in many, many contexts. Yes, I think there isn't one simple answer. That's the conclusion I've come to. And and that's based on both our own experience of working and walking alongside people who are now having to live through multiple traumas. So what is resilient, what signifies resilience for one person or one household would not necessarily signify resilience in another one. I think there are many aspects to resilience. I think there are structural aspects to resilience, as Susan alluded to before. If there aren't the funds or there aren't the safety net, if you like, of financial and other sorts of practical supports, that's going to impact on people's resilience. There's only so much stuff that you can throw at communities or individuals before that kind of resilience really starts to break down. Yes. I think it's also subjective and objective. So what many people that we speak with in the line of our work, and and keep in mind that we're working across four local government areas, that's Hawkesbury, Blue Mountains, Lithgow and Midwestern. Yeah. So we are working with a lot of people in, you know, diverse circumstances, if you like. And so what resilience means to them is usually quite different and many people don't actually view themselves as resilient. But just in conversation with them, you know, we will sort of be wondering, well, how did you manage on your own when the fires were racing down the hill 
to get your horses together and move them into another paddock. Now, that's about survival. But then, you know, a year and a half down the track, you're telling me that you've rebuilt your stables, you've you've done this, that and the other, you've been lending out your horses to help, you know, some of the kids who were traumatised by the fires in your local area to get into horse riding. So resilience looks different to different people. I think there are so many elements of it. We tend to focus resilience on the individual, whereas I tend to think that there are many factors. I take an ecological approach to resilience, I guess. There are many factors that contribute to resilience and many factors that diminish resilience. hope that makes sense. No, it does. That's great. Great answer. It makes me think about if I put a little anecdote in that, yes, certainly my experience of having an MS diagnosis, having worked as a trauma counsellor, I could take a lot of theory on board, Mm. uh, things that I talked to my clients about in the past. So that was actually very helpful when that diagnosis came in. But then it's the day-to-day, the subjective experience Mm. that kind of, you know, goes up and down. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Anne. Julia, can I just mention one more thing that was said to me by a resident that we've been had some long-term contacts with? Yeah. She basically said resilience is what you do when you don't have any other choice. (laughs) Good point. Yes, well said. I think that that's a great way of describing it. You know, I think it's the just the ability to keep going yeah. and to see some sense of a future so that you can take one step in front of the other, no matter how you're feeling in that moment. And maybe some sort of understanding within yourself that it, things will get better. Yeah. It looks like different things on the outside and I suspect it feels like different things on the inside for people. And, and is really subjective. But if only we could bottle it and hand it out, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, that'd be terrific. And maybe that's what podcasts are about, a little bit of that. Mm. That can be very helpful. But, yeah, I was reading up about your career, Susan, and what a lot of resilience to have stood for Parliament a couple of times before getting that seat. So that's that's another way in which... We can be resilient, isn't it, by having that belief that this is what we're going to do and keeping on at it. Yeah, and I think one of the things about resilience is you don't necessarily see it in somebody else. And if you don't don't appreciate the experience they're going through, it doesn't look particularly hard. What they're doing doesn't look particularly hard to anybody. Mm. And I think about this, I've got a daughter just starting university as a mature age student. You know, you forget what it takes to get through those first subjects and to write your first mm. essays and meet those sorts of deadlines. But that takes a real, not just determination, but an ability that if you, you know, to pick yourself up and keep going. And I think it's only when I got to Parliament and my colleagues said, oh, my goodness, took Susan three elections to get elected. And there's very few people there. Uh, There's a lot there who got in the first time they ran, even more probably who got in, maybe it took two goes to get there, but there's not very many who went back for that third go after two losses uh, to do it again. The only people who really understand it, I worked out, are those who won a term in Parliament but then might have lost and were just so determined to get back there. They they ran a third time so they'd had a win, they'd had a loss and then they came back again for, for that 
third attempt. Mm. I mean, I don't think the wider community would look and say, oh, well, you know, she must be quite resilient to have run a third time after two losses. But it certainly is a big decision to do it because the actual running for um, election is a huge ask on on yourself, on your your other career, on your family, on your finances. I guess that is only possible when you do have that ability to dust yourself off and pick yourself up and go, well, what happened to me wasn't so bad and it would be okay if that happened again, (laughs) which is what you have to have have that mindset. I mean, you can't live in the Blue Mountains and naively think that you will never face a fire. Uh, You know, you have to go, right, what's the worst that can happen? Well, you know, it didn't happen to me because no one died in our fires and I think that's something we're all really grateful for from those 2013 fires. But, you know, if if the, the other worst happens and you lose everything, how will you go with that? We're certainly very conscious of that, having um, been through it once, rebuilt on the same site, albeit a much more fortified house, but with the absolute understanding that it, it can happen twice. Yeah. It, look, that must have been absolutely devastating. You know, I, d- I can't imagine what that would be like. I remember saying to people, you would not wish, wish this on your worst enemy. But, but at the bottom of it was understanding that we were still there and we, we ha- might have lost stuff, but we were all still intact. Yeah. And, in fact... I think in my head we hung on to things that were positives and perhaps that is one of the things that helps some people cope better than others and that is focusing on the things that you're grateful for rather than all the negative things. And and there were a couple of things for me. Well, one was in the whole community, no lives lost. That really was significant. The other for me was that my son had been home at the time, my 19-year-old, then 19-year-old, and he got out safely and he got out without having seen the house on fire. Because what I hear from people is the images that you have of those sorts of things really stay with you. And I'm just really grateful that we encouraged him just to, to get out really fast and that meant we didn't take very he didn't take very much with him but he hasn't got seared into his brain sort of image that I know my neighbor's daughter does who Mm -hmm. came up to him not long after he'd left maybe 20 minutes after he'd left the street she also arrived at where he'd got to at at the shopping center at Winmalee and she said to him I saw your house on fire And, you know, that's an image she has to live with but hopefully doesn't have the same emotional baggage with it as it would have had he seen that image. And they're the sorts of things I think when you think, okay, well, we can move on from this and Mm. find a way to reconcile it. I think part of it is looking, it it is gratefulness and and thinking about the things that you're really lucky about. Mm. And we feel really lucky that he managed to get, he tipped out a box of Susan Templeman T-shirts from the election (laughs) that had happened that I'd lost a few weeks earlier and he loaded it up with photo albums. So we don't have all of them. We have massive gaps, but, my goodness, we have so much more than, than so many others in our shoes have. Oh, I love that. That's a fantastic little anecdote at the end. And gratitude, that's that's one of the things. It's the secret, I think. Has that been easy for you, Susan? Is that something you've always been able to practice? 
Look, I am not a very sentimental sort of person, I guess. I don't have little sayings on my walls and I don't, (laughs) you know, have mantras and and the like. But it just seems like the obvious thing that that Mm. now strikes me is that uh, maybe I have always tried to find something to be grateful for. It could come from my grandmother or my mother, who knows. You know, be grateful for what you've got type stuff mm. when you're, you're whining about something as a kid. It does really feel important to be able to to think how lucky we are. I reckon it goes back to those lessons parents used to try and teach us in the 70s when you didn't want to eat what was on your plate and you'd say, now, you should be grateful you've got those peas because there are starving children in, you know, whatever country children were starving in at that particular time. I suspect it was um, Africa in my day and sadly still will be. You know, but they say, but there are starving children who'd be grateful for those. I could never make myself grateful for peas, but those sorts of messages must have stuck somehow. Mm. And Anne, what about you? Is is gratitude, you know, a technique that you use? Um, I guess it's not so much a technique, but I suppose an approach to life. Yeah. I think most definitely, and look, let's be honest, we all have our down days where you you just feel like, you know, life isn't delivering up the goods. <laughs> Maybe, you know, lowering my expectations to recognise that I'm one of 7 billion people on the planet and rather than finding that depressing, it actually puts things in, into perspective for me. Mm. Look, one of the things I, I wanted to just add, I think, was that, where people are at at the moment is not necessarily where they will be, you know, in two, three, four, five years. Mm. We've had the privilege of staying in contact with some of the residents that we supported back in 2013 and 14 when Step by Step was first working in recovery. And what has come through, um, and there's also recently been a report that's been released called Beyond Bushfires, which is a 10-year longitudinal study of where people are in their recovery in Victoria after the Black Saturday fires. But just speaking from personal interactions that I've had with some of these residents that we've stayed in contact with for seven years is the transformative aspects of having survived and lived through a a disaster event and and Susan probably you know can speak to this better than I can but one of the things I remember I met up with a resident who I hadn't seen for maybe about four or five years after step by step completed our first tour of duty if you like and when I saw her she walked up to me and the first thing she said to me was do I look changed Hmm. and I just was taken aback for a minute and I just said, do you feel changed? And we spent the next hour talking about all the ways that she felt her experience in the bushfires had changed her, both good and bad, yeah. and changed her children and, and changed her approach to life. So I guess in a way she was able to, if you like, grow a completely new root system you know, to enable her and her children to grow in a very different kind of soil. It's probably a clumsy kind of metaphor, but, um, you know, I think one of the keys to resilience is at some stage to come to a place of acceptance that you will need to adapt to the reality that change is going to be a big part of your 
foreseeable future. Mm. Yeah. Big and small. So the, the resident I just spoke to you about, and she had lost her home like Susan had lost her home and had other things going on in their family before and after the fires. Yeah. She'd said, I would not wish this upon anybody, but she said, but in a weird sort of way, I'm grateful because it's changed me, it's changed us as a family in lots of big and little ways. So I think there's a transformative aspect of resilience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that. And I think that goes to my observations that we all do this really differently. We all do, you know, whatever you want to call it, recovery, resilience. It looks different to everybody. So there's not just a magic formula that helps people through because I'm sure my husband would have a a very different experience Mm. as would my son and speak about it very differently. Yeah. But I do think that it changes you and it sounds to me like that person has had great acceptance about the change Mm. which of course like the change is often external and we can't control it we can only control how we react to it Uh, and she's obviously embraced that yeah Um, yeah and and that wasn't an easy process for her by any means I don't think it is for anybody and I think you know it probably involves in some cases a few dark nights of the soul And I think particularly, you know, Susan and Julia of the people now that have not only experienced drought, but bushfires, pandemic and floods. And I just think there is despair in parts of the community. And I think in some ways we need to be able to recognise that, acknowledge it, work against our own impulses to try and Pollyanna that, Mm. um, try to go, it's all going to be okay I think we need to, as perhaps as a community and a society, to be okay with just being with people in their struggle, in their pain, in that moment. Yeah. And I think the more kind of repeated experiences that people have of people just sitting and listening, as Susan has described, which is what she's been doing so beautifully, just mm-hmm. being with people in the challenge and the struggle, I think is a real uh, deposit in the resilience piggy bank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because people do want to fix it for you. Yeah. Yes. And, and I mean, I fight that urge all the time. Oh, I wish I could fix this situation. But what I see, and not just in natural disasters, but it, the the issues are so big, and I don't have the capacity single handedly to fix them, uh, especially not from opposition. And even if I could change government policy, it's not going to be a quick fix for people often. But that recognition that even though you can't fix it, you can help other people come to terms with it, perhaps. And that's, I think, Anne, the allowing them to talk, mm. allowing them to be angry, sad, and mm. understanding why they're feeling those things and their frustration. You know, it goes to this idea of what role people play. But one of the things I really remember from the fires was people's desire to try and make things better for me and others, all the other people who'd lost their homes, and that manifested as wanting to give us things, mm-hmm. whether it was food and often that was, you know, very gratefully received and different people, different families found different things useful, whether it was something really practical, whether it was something impractical but just very thoughtful there was a real desire by people to gift things upon us out of that experience I sort of started to see that as a almost like 
making some sort of tribute to as we do to a deity who were you know a sacrifice <laughs> and I felt like it was almost like people saying we are so sad that you went through what we you went through but we're really grateful it wasn't us who went through it and yeah. like we want to feel like we need to pay a sacrifice to yeah. to thank the you know the powers that be for that it, it was a, a really interesting because it really the giving was I accepted much more for them than I did for myself yeah you know we were we were grateful for a lot of things, but there comes a point where, in fact, you, you don't need to be given things. You actually, you need money and you need to go and choose things potentially yes. uh, beyond yeah. the first very immediate part of the crisis. So, yeah, it, it's just I, I would love to look at the psychology of that a lot more deeply to understand the community reaction around it. Um, but you know what, what it did do it just kept on showing us how caring the community was and it wasn't so much what they gave it was the fact of the giving people were just so caring uh, and and wanting to help any way they could oh, that's fascinating and I think your theory that the way that you've thought about that I think you probably are right that kind of almost like warding off the bad spirits, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it sounds very like a very primitive sort of yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. mentality around it. Anyway, psychologically interesting. Mm. But it made me think when you were talking about just needing people to sit and and listen or sit and be be with the feelings. I love that little animation of. Brene Brown around empathy. Are you guys familiar with that? No. It's just fantastic. It's just this, it's on YouTube. It's just this little three minute animated explanation of the difference between empathy and sympathy. And just saying that, you know, what you need is someone that listens, but the, the opposite is the person that comes down and says, well, you know, at least you've mm. still got whatever mm. it is or at least right. so and she just says it so beautifully i think there's a lot of sympathy i think the empathy is a harder ask because it means that you need to commit some time to sit with your own anxiety or distress at hearing or being witness to somebody's struggle or pain yeah it requires a lot more of us and I think that's why it's definitely a skill and anyone can do it Mm -hmm. but it does require a lot more of ourselves to be with people in their distress and their pain absolutely yeah and it takes a personal toll doing that Mm -hmm. I mean how can you do it without you becoming caught up in it to some extent it's so recognised by the receiver, the difference between it, between mm. being sympathetic, which requires no emotional engagement by the person who's expressing sympathy uh, versus versus the empathy. Yeah. What I've seen in the, uh, I saw it in the bushfires, you know, the ones a year ago, plus the floods, is a lot of people, the people we would call in the moment they are called the victims of the flood or the bushfire. Mm. I think beyond that we like to see ourselves as the survivors, but but the victims saying to me a lot, 
oh, look, there are others much worse off than me. Oh, yeah. And them empathising with the people. So what I saw in the flood, a lot of people lost their homes. Around 40 homes were completely destroyed. Mm. Uh, around 100 were very profoundly destroyed and another 100 moderately damaged and inundated. So they might still be standing, those 200 are still standing, but the internals will be absolutely lost. And they would say to me about the people who'd lost their land, their turf farms or their vegetable crop, oh, but, you know, at least at least I've still got my work. Those poor people have lost their income and their business. And the vegetable and turf and caravan park owners would say to me, oh, well, at least we've still got our home. You know, it's just our business that's really been hit. So interestingly, people trying to, I guess, or very easily feeling that they were better off than others. I've seen that every disaster, people going, oh, no, there are people worse off than me. And I look at them and I go, no, actually, you guys are pretty badly affected. Mm -hmm. You have either just lost an entire turf crop, you've lost everything on your vegetable farm, including your sheds, and, you know, there's it's putrid. They empathise very deeply with others who are experiencing loss. Mm. Uh, and and so that's also an interesting phenomena about how you then crawl out of that space and accept the help that is there. Yeah. Because I think, Anne, you'd remember back in the 2013 fires, there were even news stories written about how unwilling <laughs> the cohort that I was involved in were in accepting charity. We didn't think we needed it. You know, we were going, yeah. okay, we're insured and, you know, we can get through this. And it was a bit embarrassing accepting money and and things for sure that was a phenomenon wasn't it because it was people that hadn't really tapped into any kind of community or welfare type services before Mm -hmm. and Julia we're finding that this time around as well because I guess it's you know people's identities uh, are tied up in lots of different things it it can be a um you know, self-sufficiency is a big narrative that, you know, operates in our communities, particularly in the rural and primary producer communities. It's very much about you're there to help other people. You're not there to accept help yourself. And I think particularly in terms of accessing mental health and psychological and therapeutic services, there is stigma anyway. But I think for a lot of the people that we're tapping in with, by admitting that for example, I'm not sleeping or I'm snappier than what I normally would be or I'm having these horrible flashbacks or these nightmares mm. that, you know, something of their own value will be lost. It's quite hard to describe. So that really requires recovery support services to tailor the way that we deliver services in a way that doesn't have people feeling stigmatised and also the language we use. We specifically avoid using medical and diagnostic labels. We specifically avoid using welfare and social work kind of jargon. It's just very much sort of everyday language. So I think it just takes time. People need time. They need time to process what has happened to them multiple times in some cases. And they just need to know that services are going to be around for a while. We haven't been forgotten. I think um, Susan would relate to this, that after the bushfires and the pandemic hit, and we weren't able to go out and do outreach for obvious reasons, there was a lot of people expressing 
that they had felt forgotten and abandoned, you know, by the community, by the country, what have you. And I think in some ways that was for many people the worst part of the disaster events is this sense of when the pandemic came in, they couldn't tap into the the people and the relationships and the the knitting groups and, uh, you know, the, the sporting clubs that they would normally tap into, which would actually keep them resilient, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think people's resilience really took a hard hit during the pandemic and they're still, if you like, trying to rebuild those social connections and other connections. And I mentioned the Beyond Bushfires report that was released not so long ago. And the big themes that came through in regards to what strengthens people's resilience after disaster events is connections and relationships. It's quite simple in some ways. But when the pandemic came in and really impacted people's relationships and connections that you know, their resilience took a bit of a downturn. Yeah. Yeah, that that idea of being forgotten, the flood people certainly feel that they're going to be much more easily forgotten, although I hope that over the next little while there'll be reminders that they're not forgotten Mm. and I will certainly be making sure that the issues that, that have come out of it aren't. But, yes, now I think the other danger is that with flood that bushfire people realise that, we know it's a long recovery and no one is going to sort of now drop the ball and go, oh, here's here's something bright and shiny, we've got a flood, let's look after those people and Mm. let's forget about the bushfire people. The journey is so long yeah. and I don't know how many weeks it's been now. It's been a few weeks but it's only been weeks and it will be, you know, this time next year the people's lives will still be impacted by what has occurred to them. And, and and I don't know if people have said to you things like, in my head, there's this very clear line, it's before the fire and after the fire. Mm. There's two different lives, two different people. Yeah. It's, it's a definitive marker. And I don't know how big an event has to be for it to be that sort of absolute marker in your life. But certainly these massive natural disasters are. Oh, definitely. And I guess, you know, it's not surprising, is it? Because it's not just, and I'm not minimising this at all, if your house burns down but the rest of your street and your physical and social landscape is untouched, it's quite different to when every, you know, house in your street has been burnt down, either destroyed or significantly damaged, when the natural environment has been so decimated that, you know, Mm. there's no bird life and there's Mm. no animal life. I think when your world has been so radically transformed and in a matter of hours in many cases, I think it is life-changing. The way that you see yourself, the way that you see the, the physical and the natural world is completely transformed. One of the things that we've heard from a lot of people across the four LGAs that we're working in is there is a deep sense of grief at the loss of natural habitat and wildlife because of these catastrophic fires and now, of course, the floods. Because I think for many people, particularly in those more sort of outlying peri-urban regional areas, that some of the reasons why they move to those areas is they want to be close to the natural environment. They want to interact with it. It's part of their spiritual nurture, if you like. 
And when that has been so significantly impacted, that place where they would go for spiritual nurture and, and for physical health and all of those other sorts of helpful aspects is gone. They have been expressing that they're feeling that loss very, very keenly. So some of the things that we're really trying to link people back into is replanting. So speaking of a resilience building, very simple activity is actually putting your hands back into the soil that has been so wounded, if you like, and being a part of that regeneration, I think has gone a long way for some of the residents that we've been walking alongside in terms of building a sense of not only agency, but a sense of, you know, I'm going to work with nature to help nature to repair. Actually, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was a little bit surprised to begin with when people had lost their material goods, you know, like their home, their cars, their fencing, you know, their TVs, all of that. And many of them were just really mourning the loss of the natural environment around them. And it's so important for them personally, for their resilience and their recovery, to feel like they're actually part of regenerating the natural world. Hmm. Now, I remember coming back to our block uh, after the, well, I was there uh, immediately after the fires and then for quite a long time having to go back and, you know, try and find remnants of things. But there came a point where I just couldn't look at the block anymore and it hadn't been cleared. It took in 2013, a very long time um, for there to be an actual clean-up program. And I didn't go there, but my neighbours who didn't lose their houses, some of them, had to drive past all those burnt-out blocks every day. When we got together, they talked about how that made them feel and that, and that was hard for them from a recovery perspective. But the other thing I remember is the joy at seeing wildlife come back. Like within a few months, I was back on the block after a bit of a cap and there were little blue wrens mm. were the first birds I saw back. So the insects had obviously come back and the these little blue wrens were hopping around uh, and they now, for me, uh, were really the first sign of bird life coming back. And then, I don't know if you if you remember, there were, was it was a really big cicada year, December yes, yes. 2013. The cicadas were as noisy as can be. Not quite as noisy, I think, as they were after these, you know, the summer after the last fires. This just this past summer now seemed to be this real resurgence. And those signs of life really do lift your spirits when you're looking at, in my case, a barren block mm. with the the garden I had made for over 20 years completely gone. But here was nature mm. showing that it was there and it was resilient. And I think that gave a lot of hope. I used to say the nature has bounced back much faster than we have. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, that isn't the case after the 2019-2020 fires in a no. lot of areas because the fierceness of the fire was such that I feel quite desolate looking at the, the the desolation of those valleys where you can see there's no regrowth. And I do think, you know, the message in that from what you're saying, Anne, is that having a recovery that involves people with the bush, look, it would have a twofold effect. Not only would it help the bush in its regeneration and, and recovery, but it would have a really beautiful flow-on effect to the human beings involved in it. Very much so. And I think... It has so many other benefits, you know, as you've mentioned, Susan, including, 
You know, we know that uh, people's physical health really takes a downturn. You know, we're in the second year now, but, you know, the first year of the floods or the, the more significant floods. And a lot of the residents that we're working with, particularly in the more rural areas, are of uh, the older cohort. So they've been living in the area for 30 to 40 years. They might have done bushfires before, for example, or other disaster events, but due to advanced age and or, or, you know, an exacerbation of existing medical issues, because we all know that stress, increased levels of stress is very, very bad for your health. So their capacity to be able to rebuild, to do this again, mm -hmm. if you like, yeah. is very, very compromised. So they're needing to look at making some very tough decisions about mm. whether they stay or whether they go. And obviously when people leave a particularly small-knit communities or streets, for example, that leaves gaps in the social network, if that makes sense. Susan, I'm, I know that you would remember this in some parts of, you know, Winmalee and Springwood, uh, some people did not return to rebuild and so people missed their neighbours or they lost connections that they'd built, you know, over a long period of time in their streets. So I think, yes, what is doable if we focus on what people can do in these moments, and I think the simplest thing is planting something in the ground, planting a seed. Doing that in company is even better. So if you're doing it with people from your community, in your street, the flow-ons are uh, even more beneficial. Oh, I'm going to come in now, change the topic and, and finishing up, I guess. What are the things that you do personally to maintain your resilience? Who wants to start? <laughs> well, I know what I did after the fires. I worked and having a job that I loved uh, and being able to do something that didn't involve thinking about bushfire or rebuilding so I, I guess that's in a way I just distracted myself from it by throwing myself into my work which was a necessity as well because yeah. we needed we needed money to rebuild a house but look I think I'm the wrong person to be even thinking about that because the job I do now involves so little downtime that, yeah. that for me it's literally moments so my moments to recharge and might be, well, I love reading. So I do read daily before I fall asleep and escaping into a book, which is not about me, which is not about my world, but some other world, uh, whether it's a, a challenging world or a joyful world, that is one of my things that actually helps me sleep better. And I think sleep is probably really key mm -hmm. to being able to cope with all the things that, that get thrown at me. Certainly, I just find now, it's the moments. I I gather those moments and go, that was a really, you know, sweet moment. And it might be a, a connection with somebody. It might be a chat with my kids. It, it literally might be a phone call, which I'll do on my way home this evening and catch up with an old friend. And it'll just be a quick phone call through, hoping that the signal won't drop out between my office and my, <laughs> and my home. Because I don't have time to do any of the other big things I would have done in, in my old life, which would have been head overseas for a couple of months every couple of years for a really big recharge and that, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. I was going to say music is one of my things, listening to music. And Susan, we've got the same birthday and oh, it's the same day as Kate Bush. 
Oh, is it really? I should know that. I know. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes, that, that 30th of July, that was a good date in the calendar. Very good um, date. And, and look, I think you're right. Music has certainly uh, helped my recovery and I probably don't call on it as often now. I tend to listen to people talking on the radio rather than music on the radio. But I used to have to drive past the turnoff to Winmalee and drive up the Great Western Highway to my temporary home at Hazelbrook. And it was really painful driving past the turnoff to go to Winmalee. And I'd sometimes pull over because I had a cute little car with the roof came down better than a psychology appointment, I always thought. <laughs> and I'd pull over, put the roof down, put Queen on or Meatloaf, um, and yeah. I would sing my way up the rest of the highway to Hazelbrook. Uh, <laughs> and as I drove into my driveway, my husband would either hear, we are the champions or, you know, some big, really big song. Yeah, I certainly used it. Um, and I probably should use it more music much more as a as a, <laughs> as a way to, to recharge. And humour is the other one. What would you nominate, Anne? Look, a bit like Susan, I can only really take moments and mini breaks and I'm okay with that. So when I do take those mini breaks or moments, it is definitely I like to go bushwalking on my own. Mm. I need to empty out my brain on a regular basis because every day brings something new. So I, so I need to empty out my brain so I can come at whatever problems or things arise in a fresh way. Yep, making music. So yes. as you know, Julia, I, I still sing in a couple of bands, believe it or not. Yeah. Gigs are a bit few and far between on the ground, but when I get them, God, I enjoy them. And I just started picking up the paintbrush again. So art and music are, are my staples and being close to nature and obviously having lovely friends like yourself and <laughs> I have a very understanding husband who when I said to him, um, guess what, I'm doing step by step again and he just groaned. <laughs> He's been very understanding. Yeah, I think all of the things that are not about disaster, that's what kind of keeps me going. Oh. You know the one thing we've left out? We've left out chocolate. I just oh, need yes. to say chocolate. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh, look, thank you to both of you for talking to me today. Thank you, Julia. It's been great. And thank you, Susan. Thank you. Lovely to be able to step back and think it all through. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Susan and Anne for being so generous with their time and the wisdom they brought to share with us. You'll probably agree that 2021 continues to present challenges to us all in how we face adversity, particularly where we feel that we have little control on the forces at play. I hope you have found something helpful in my conversation with these two amazing women and I look forward to you joining me again next time on Resilience. Resilience is an In Your Ears podcast, presented and produced by Julia Butler, produced and edited by Charles Amsden, with music by Night Radio. For more information on this and other podcasts, check out the In Your Ears podcast's Facebook page. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and spread the word. <laughs>